This is our 33rd sermon in our suggested topic sermon series, and it's number 13 of the 14 that are in the category of Christian living. And the requested subject is depression, suicide due to much despair in the world. Certainly, we could say a lot about people despairing of life and giving up in the world, giving up on life. Now that suicide has become legalized in Canada, as it were, the legal medical option, many people are lining up to terminate their lives. And this is a distressing thing to see. Some of them are overwhelmed with physical sufferings or mental illness or issues related to trauma or hardship. Now that so many have accepted the lie that man is not made for God, in the image of God, it is honestly quite logical to terminate your life if you're not enjoying it. Why wouldn't you if there's nothing else? Perhaps you may go on because other people need you when you're depending on you or perhaps the, because of the possibility that things might get better and you might miss out on something. But those are pretty pale reasons to, if you're miserable, to, to want to go on. Uh, to the point of possibly being miserable for the rest of your days if there's nothing else. It's true, of course, that since taking life, even your own life, is a sinful thing, as we know from God, then we would discourage anyone from doing murder, which is what it is, self-murder. We as Christians would always discourage anyone taking their own life. And all the more since we also know that the person who tries to escape their miseries by murder and who does not know the Lord is not going to escape their miseries at all, but that they're going to have a much worse misery than they ever even imagined when they're visited in hell for rebellion against God for all eternity. They enter into a permanent state of misery from which they can never be extricated. I have told suicidal people before, if you want to die, then there is a good way to die. Die to yourself and come alive in Jesus Christ. Come alive to him. Pour out your life and come and be belong to him. And yes, I understand that you want to die. I would want to die too outside of Christ, but you come to him and die that way. Get rid of your yourself and come and follow him. He will forgive your sins and he will give you a new life with uh, meaning and purpose. Understand that God has sent trouble into this world. I mentioned this some this morning with a grand purpose to wake us up to the fact that our relationship with him is not right and to call us to repent and to turn to him. As I mentioned this morning that we would never come to God if there were no troubles in the world. We need this because it alerts us to the fact that things are not right with him so that we will then seek him and and reconcile with him, which is what we all need to do. It's broken because of the world is broken because of our sin. God is in the world graciously calling us through the gospel. He's commanded that the gospel be preached to every person that and those who believe that those who believe will be forgiven and restored. Apart from that, though, there's really no reason not to be depressed and to despair, because apart from the Lord, you're going to a miserable end. There's nothing. There's no future whatsoever but misery. Some people don't even realize they're they're in despair, and they don't even realize the extent of the misery to which they're headed, apart from the Lord. This being so, then my focus will be on what will keep believers from losing heart. We say here that depression is one and the same with losing heart. And so I use those terms somewhat interchangeably. You have no hope when you lose heart. You have no desire to go on. It all seems worthless. You many times don't even want to eat or you want or you eat excessively, just like gorging and stuff. Or you just want to die. Because you lose heart. Those are all characteristics of um, what they would label as depression. It's also characteristics of, of losing heart. 
you, uh, I will proceed then with uh, our, our scripture reading, which is from 2 Corinthians 4, New Testament reading. And here in God's word, we're shown what keeps us from losing heart. So let's take a look at that. 2 Corinthians 4, this is the word of God. This is Paul, of course, writing these words. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. There's that phrase, lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world has blinded. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Thanks be to God for his holy and infallible word. So in looking at this subject, I'm going to proceed in this way. First, we'll look at 2 Corinthians 4, the passage I just read. And far from doing a, a full exegesis of that passage, we will look at what Paul says keeps him and his fellow servants from losing heart. Okay, what, what keeps them from that? And then, after we have done that, rather quickly going through that passage for the length of it, then we will look at the example of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 that we read earlier, which shows us how faithful believers can fall into depression and lose heart. And thirdly, we will look at how our gracious Lord comes to restore us when that happens, how he came, what the things he uses, what he does, how he restored Elijah. So we'll look at those things. Let's, let's proceed then. First of all, what keeps believers from losing heart according to Paul in the word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We don't lose heart when we remember, first of all, that we are here for God. That's what you see in the first paragraph of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's found, the idea is found in verses 1 through 6. See what Paul says in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. God has given us ministry or service is what ministry means to perform for him. Now, when you're restored to God through salvation in Christ, you have a fundamental change in your life that now you have a reason to live. And it is the reason that we have to live. And that is to serve God. That's why, as I believe I mentioned it this morning, Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ very, very often. He's delighted to be a slave. That's what that word means, 
a slave to Jesus Christ. He's found the meaning of life in that. And we all find that when we come to the Lord. Paul spoke of his life in Christ as a life poured out as an offering. In Romans 12, he tells us that that is our reasonable service to God, to pour out our lives as a living sacrifice to God. God has shown mercy to us in restoring us to him. So now we are here for him. He has enabled us to be restored so that we can live for him. We should always have been here for him. That should have been our purpose all along, our, our intended purpose. I am here for God should have been what I would say. Uh, but now we can be for him, restored to him. Paul explains that he and his fellow ministers are doing what they are not doing what they do merely to get results okay, in their ministry. Of course, they pray earnestly for results. They pray that people will repent and come to the Lord because that's what God has called them to do and they're burdened for the people they minister to. They labor diligently to preach the gospel faithfully and truly, but they do all that realizing that the men in the world, like Paul says in this passage, will not see the gospel and believe unless God opens their hearts because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of those that believe not. And so they're not trying to get people to respond to God somehow without actually having their eyes open. They want people to really come to God. They're not just looking to say, oh, look at how successful I have been. I've got all these people that are listening and following and this kind of thing. No, they don't handle the word of God deceitfully or in that kind of a way. They're here for God. They're not here for themselves. It's easy to, for someone to get into ministry and then be all in it for themselves and start to manipulate and twist things. Paul and his companions had no interest in trying to sell themselves, handling the word of God in a, in a deceitful way like the prosperity preachers have done in every single age. There were prosperity preachers in Paul's age that were doing the same thing. They're not trying to get a following by clever marketing techniques and manipulation. They're looking to truly bring people to Jesus Christ through the means that God has appointed. When it is not about you but about God, it doesn't matter what happens. Okay, Ultimately, it doesn't matter because what, what you are and what you're doing is for God. Not that you're without feeling, not that at all. But that if you're rejected and put in prison in your ministry, you don't come back with a new plan that will avoid that. <laughs> you still go on and do the will of God, even if it's going to lead to the same thing. Paul is exemplary in that. He was not worried about what happened to him. He would go on and preach again and he'd get put in prison again or stoned or whatever. He'd go and do the same thing again, the same thing again. He wasn't just trying to work circumstances. He was trying to honor the Lord. You don't, in other words, give up because of prison or beatings. That's what a lot of people would do. They get beaten once and they say, well, okay, I've done my ministry now and that's the end of it, but not Paul. You do it all for God again and again because you're here for him. Even if they kill you, it doesn't matter because you're here for God. And if you give your life for God, that's for God too. That means that whenever God has given you hard things, now let's bring it into our everyday life. Like sick children in the middle of the night, you look after them. It is an opportunity for you to do that for God's glory. To do it in a way that is for God's glory. The same thing when you have a hard day at work. It's for God's glory. You, you, you respond because you're not here to have an easy day at work. You're here to honor God. A hard day at work, you can honor God. An easy day at work, you can honor God. That doesn't mean, again, that we don't have any feelings or we don't care. But it means that we don't lose heart because we have many hard days. Because every hard day we use for God. Every easy day we use for God. That's our purpose. The same thing is true when you find out you have terminal cancer. It's an assignment from God. My assignment is to be a minister of the gospel if my assignment becomes to have terminal cancer and to go and uh, have distressful days and nights in the hospital, that's my assignment from God. It's for his glory. And there's no reason for me to lose heart because I can honor God doing that 
the same as I can in doing something else. We're not here for ourselves, but for him. You will come to know him better through the cancer or whatever it might be, and you will be able to make him known to others through that. You don't lose heart. Your service is not over. It has simply changed direction. And yes, it's hard, but because it's hard, it's something that you can give to him. You can do for him. Now, that's easy to say. It's not so easy to do because we're not perfected and we have much growing to do. And God uses such things to enable us to grow. I remember one time when when Mary was uh, making some changes and she was just starting to implement those things. And then, you know, she got sick or something. You know, and then she said, why does God always do this whenever I'm starting to really make progress and make change? And I get sick in some way. And I said, it's because he loves you so much. He's bringing things into your life that will actually help you to grow. It might not be what you had in mind. You had it all mapped out. You're going to do this and this and this for God. And then you get stopped. Why? Because God is, he, he's the one that we are here for. He decides what my agenda is. And I leave it to him. So that's the first thing. We don't lose heart when we remember that we are here for God. Now, the, the second thing. We don't lose heart, Paul says in this passage, when God sustains us in our weakness. And I said, when? Because sometimes he may withdraw from us and we may lose heart. Right? I'm not saying that we never lose heart because sometimes we do. But when God sustains us, we don't lose heart in those things. We have a remarkable grace of God in our lives that we're able to, to go on with whatever is sent to us. Now, this whole idea is found in verses 7 through 13. In verse 7, he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What is the treasure? The treasure is the gospel itself, the light of God in us, the new life that we have through Christ. It is actually Christ himself, Christ in you, the hope of glory, who restores us to this whole living for God thing, this whole life for God that we talked about before. He's restored us to live for God. We have that treasure now of by the gospel, by Christ, living for God. We have this in earthen vessels. Okay, these frail bodies that are still on the pathway of death as far as our bodies are concerned. They're still subject to death and suffering of all kinds of weakness until the resurrection. He's put this life of Christ in bodies that are dying and subject to all kinds of suffering. Why did he do that? so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. It really sets up the contrast. This is God sustaining someone who could not sustain themselves. This is God's work that enables Paul to go to prison again and again and again, to get beaten again and again, to do all the things that he's doing, to be rejected. What's more, they are bodies of sin. We are weak and helpless apart from God, and even to obey him, we need constantly to look to him for help, to his spirit and to Christ. We lean on him. We depend on him. We pray or we will fail. When we go on, it is because he is sustaining us. When you're a patient with that midnight sickness of children or when everything goes wrong at work and you bear it, in a way pleasing to God, or when he enables you to bear that physical infirmity or that relational difficulty, it's all of his grace. And God's grace is remarkable in such times. That's why people that go through those things often know God better than those who don't go through those things. God has different plans for people. He reveals himself to us in different ways. Paul explains that even though we're pushed beyond our limits as far as us with these frail dying bodies, we're enabled to keep on going by his grace. That's really what he's showing us here. Look at verses 8 through 11. He says, we're hard pressed on every side. Now, if it was just me with this frail body, this earthen vessel, 
I'll be crushed by that. But he says we're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. This is, this is beautiful. He says we're perplexed. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, how to deal with this. But not in despair. Left to ourselves, we would despair. We'd be over. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We've still got someone sustaining us. We're driven against by authorities and leaders, but somehow we're sustained through that. We're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always, he says, caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. We're being crucified with Christ. We're dying. We're dying beings who are, who are helpless and dying. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. That people might see, again, the excellence of the power of God. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. People see his life in you. When things happen that would utterly overwhelm and destroy you, and you nevertheless are not crushed or, or, or so on. Without Christ, we would be as dead as anyone else. In fact, we are constantly dying as he constantly gives us new life. We're putting off the old man, dying to what we were, and living unto him by his grace. We're also dying physically. These old bodies are going to fail. This makes that new life that Jesus gives us redound all the more to his glory. It is clear that we are upheld and enabled to serve God. Paul says, death is working in us, but life in you. As you see us dying and God sustaining us, it brings life to you, who he ministers to. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. With, so uh, having him work in us like this is what keeps us going, keeps us from losing heart. It is how Paul and his companions kept preaching despite the opposition they faced. Look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, okay, we're, we're trusting in the Lord according to what it is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, okay, we preach because we believe, we also believe and therefore speak. So they were hard-pressed, they were perplexed, they were persecuted, they were struck down, but they were not crushed, in despair, forsaken, or destroyed because the life of God was manifested in them, in their weakness. Now this transitions into our third reason that we don't lose heart that's given to us here in 2 Corinthians 4. We don't lose heart when we remember that this, where this is all headed that this is all headed for glory. As verse 14 and 15 say, we go on, quote, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. There's resurrection at the end of this. And will present us with you. The people that Paul is ministering to will be together with him, resurrected before the Lord of glory. He says, for all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. What thanksgiving there is to see the company of God's people gathered together before him for all eternity. Paul says, I can't wait for that day when you're presented before Christ with me and we go before him forever and ever. I yearn for that, that future day when that happens. Our labor is not in vain. That's what makes you despair. Everything I'm doing is going nowhere. It's all a waste. It's all empty. And it is. It is empty and going nowhere without Christ. But you see, in him our labor is not in vain. We're growing in the Lord, and we're going to be with him and his people in glory forever. Therefore, we do not lose heart. When you know that there is a purpose, when you know that God is bringing you from glory to glory now and will bring you to glory in heaven, that makes all the difference. Present growth is referred to here as the inward man being renewed day by day. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, dying, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So let whatever God wants happen to my body and my estate as long as I am continuing to go, grow in grace 
and as long as I am being renewed in him. Now, not that any of us want to lose our estate and our health or all those things, but yet if we do, we don't lose heart because there's still this purpose that God is bringing us to. Eternal eternal glory is the focus of verse 17 through 18. So that's the glory that we just looked at, that presently we're growing more and more like Christ. Now in 17 and 18, we look at the future eternal glory. The things that would otherwise discourage us are actually at work, he tells us, to prepare for the glory to come and for more of the glory to come through those difficult things that we go through now. The hard things in life are actually working to bring it about that we will have more glory for eternity than we would have had without those hard things. Verse 17, that's what it says. Look at it. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. It's doing something. It's an active thing. This affliction is doing something. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For this reason, our focus is not how we're getting along in our temporal affairs, our health, our status, our wealth. We are focused on heaven. Verse 18, the focus. What is it? What is our perspective here? While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is an entirely different perspective. This was, this was one of my favorite passages when I was a new believer. It meant so much to realize that now I was for eternity. Before, everything I had was only to be lost and ruined. It was going nowhere. But now everything is going to glory. Finally, I had something worthwhile to live for and something to look forward to no matter what happens in this present world. So I say, when you know that affliction is producing eternal glory, when you are persuaded that this is so, then you don't lose heart. Now, sometimes you're not persuaded of that, and you do lose heart. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying at all that we don't. It makes all the difference, though, to know that it's all working to glory. So when you know that affliction is producing eternal glory, you won't lose heart. And that does not mean, again, that you will not lose heart if you're a believer. It means that there is never a legitimate reason to lose heart. Sometimes God even withdraws from us for a time to let us and others know our weakness. And sometimes our stubborn hearts will yield to our sinful flesh and focus on our own desires. There's a constant battle about that. We wage war constantly against the sinful lusts and desires that we have. And when we give way to the flesh, complaining and despair set in because we're not getting what we want. Now we learn then, as we move on here to our passage in Kings, 1 Kings 19, we learn from Elijah that even God's most faithful servants can and do lose heart. So when Paul says we don't lose heart, he doesn't mean that it, it never happens, but he's saying we don't lose heart when we're looking at it this way, when, we're this, this, when, we, when things are, are as they should be in that, in that regard. But there are times when we do lose heart. Everything can be going actually along quite fine in our service to God and our walk with God. Elijah had one of the most faithful ministries ever. For years, he had lived for the glory of God, boldly confronting King Ahab and his wretched wife, pagan wife, Queen Jezebel, who are, all, who are trying to kill him. Elijah clearly disregarded his own life in zealous service to God. He seemed to receive a fresh supply of God's grace every day. I mean, he had to, you know, the, the ministry that he had is just remarkable. When we find him in 1 Kings 19, he has just confronted the prophets of Baal, that famous account in Mount Carmel in uh, 1 Kings 18. 450 of those prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel a lot of you know that story. Elijah challenged them to build an altar to Baal while he would build an altar to the Lord. And the God who answered and consumed that sacrifice on the altar by fire from heaven 
would be known to be the true God. And he said, you know, choose who you're going to serve, Baal or God. Don't, don't stay on the fence. And they agreed to this. And Baal did nothing. But the Lord sent fire down from heaven that not only consumed the sacrifice, but even the rocks that were part of the altar were consumed by the fire of the Lord. He, he poured water around it too, and that was all lapped up. And just, it, it was a remarkable thing. The people initially responded shouting, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. Elijah had them execute the false prophets of Baal. He calls Israel to return to the Lord their God. It was a glorious day. So also with you, things can be going so wonderfully well and everything is just marvelous. You, you have made progress in your faith, you're having ministry to other people and you're seeing fruit in that. You feel that you'll never doubt the Lord again. You know, this is just remarkable. But then something happens. Something happens that throws you off. I mean, anything. Elijah's case he had expectations, and there were, in a way, you could say reasonable expectations that were not met. Surely after the Lord had demonstrated his power like that, and everybody had said, the Lord, he is God, they were all in awe, they were awestruck, they were amazed. Surely now, the people would follow him. They had seen with their own eyes, the Lord is God. Surely now they would return to him. But instead, Elijah gets word from the wicked queen Jezebel and she has vowed to kill him to make my life like one of the prophets that you killed if I don't make if I don't make your life like theirs it's clear that the people do not turn to the lord they continued in their rebellion and folly now I want to be clear here it was very proper for Elijah to be deeply distressed about this. You could call that losing heart, but that's not what I'm referring to as losing heart. He was deeply distressed about this. You'll see the difference in what losing heart is. We know how our Lord Jesus deeply lamented how Jerusalem rejected him. We looked at a sermon about that recently in, um, in Matthew and, and how they continued to Harden their hearts, the people of Israel, even when he had come to, to them to save them and gone about displaying his, himself as the one that had power to save, uh, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, showing that he was the Savior that had come to, to redeem his people, that he had the power and authority to forgive sins. We cannot plumb the depths of the sorrow that he had nor even the sorrow of God's servant Elijah, whose life demonstrates that he loves the Lord. I think I could say this more than any of us do. I could say that because of the way he lived. And uh, godly sorrow is a virtue. It, it was right for Elijah to say, this is terrible that they're not turning to the Lord. But here's where it goes wrong. Instead of trusting the Lord and going on in his service, Elijah gives up. That's losing heart. Elijah gave up. Jesus never gave up. Elijah gave up. Instead of receiving instruction from the Lord about what he is to do next, as he had always done in the past, Elijah always received instruction. He was a prophet and God directed him where he was to go, when he was to go, and he had always Look to the Lord for that. But instead of doing that, we read in 1 Kings 19, 3 and 4. And when he saw that, he saw this threat of Jezebel that she had sent. He arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He didn't need his servant anymore because he was thinking he, was, he just wanted to die. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, it's enough. Like, I've, I've had enough. You know, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm not accomplishing anything. For three years, Ahab and Jezebel had been looking for Elijah that they might kill him. 
And Elijah had been fearless. He would just, when it was time, when the Lord wanted him to go and confront Abraham, sorry, Ahab, he would just go right up to him, say, Ahab, there's going to be no rain for, you know, whatever. He would just go right up to him with bold as a lion. But now he runs away in fear. Nothing has really changed. She was trying to kill him all along. If she could find him. And how strange. It was right after the Lord had just manifested his divine power and glory on Mount Carmel. Every, Elijah had seen that. Everyone else had seen he is the sovereign Lord. Now, if a great man of faith like Elijah can lose heart, if he can fall into depression, so can you. The smallest thing can throw you off sometimes. We're so weak and frail. We're in these dying bodies that have to be sustained by the Lord. These sinful dying bodies that have to be sustained by the Lord. Just a comment from a spouse can completely throw everything off. Just one comment. Or some kind of disappointment that just catches. Shows our frailty. Someone else gets promotion at work. You know, that you were expecting. And you're just, oh, why am I even here? What am I even doing? And you're, you're just completely overcome by it. And you, you were, the day before, you were praising the Lord, ready to go and serve Him, do whatever He wanted you to do. It's so easy that we can just, we can just be tripped right up by by the least little thing and be a person that a person that you're discipling. Maybe there's several people that you're discipling and one of them abandons the faith. Like, what's the point? Why should I even go? You, you lose heart. Just take my life. I don't even want to do this anymore. That, that kind of thing. It triggers despair. Like Elijah. You know, you, you, you give up. Like Elijah, you pray. God, just take my life. You say, it's enough. I've had all I can deal with. You say, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. I'm accomplishing nothing. I'm useless. Why should I go on? You just want to sleep and not wake up. You're no longer living for the Lord. It's no longer about him. It's about you. It's not, Lord, what do you want out of this? But it's, I'm not getting what I wanted out of this. I'm done. We learn from this account about Elijah how quickly we can lose heart. And I do not say this to disparage Elijah in the sense that this man, he, he's way above us in terms of his faithfulness and his dedication to God. There's almost no one like Elijah in all of Scripture in terms of his dedication and his faithfulness to the Lord. I say this to say that if this is the case with him, he has a dying body that is sustained by the Lord. How much more is it true of all of us that we're in God's hands in this matter? But dear brothers and sisters, let us also learn from Elijah's experience how our gracious Lord comes to restore us. Look at what he does first. He gives him food and rest. Isn't this interesting? Elijah is worn out. I mean, he's already gone about 80 kilometers on foot from Mount Carmel, running part of the way um, in the north to just south of Beersheba. He's, he's you know, they, from Dan to Beersheba, he's gone, he's gone that, whole, that whole track across from north to south in the, in, in where, where Israel was. And, um, and all that after the intense showdown with the prophets of Baal, even more, he has had years of intense ministry, of being hunted down like an animal and all of these things. And of all things, the first thing that the Lord does is send an angel to him with angel food. <laughs> Look at this, 1 Kings 19, 5. <laughs> our, frail, our frail body, our frail dying bodies, right? Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Wait, journey? What journey? Elijah said, Let me die. That's why he went under the broom. He wanted to die. He didn't want to wake up. And he's saying, You're going on a journey. Journey? <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. 
Verse 8, so he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Isn't it marvelous to see the Lord's tender compassion? The Lord remembers that we are dust. He is the one that gives us rest, gives us beloved sleep. He's the one that gives us our daily bread. Things that Elijah often denied himself because of the rigorous rigorous ministry that he was engaged in. Like John the Baptist, he was a man of the wilderness that fasted and, you know, often went without uh, in his faithful service. But in this present state of depression, Elijah was quite content to sleep. He wanted to sleep permanently and had little interest in eating. He made no provision for food because he didn't want food. He, He was done. So not once, but twice, the angel of the Lord wakes him up. He's got a meal there for him. He's got food for him. He also gives him this journey. Okay, so the second time when the angel came and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. <laughs> what journey? <laughs> he had prepared a journey for Elijah. Elijah was hoping to die. God was planning a journey for him. It is a journey all the way to Mount Horeb which is where Mount Sinai is, the mountain where the Lord appeared to Israel to give them the Ten Commandments and to present his mercy to them revealed through the um, tabernacle and all the ceremonies and the priesthood and all those things showing the way of forgiveness. Here's the law that you come short of. Here's my grace, how that you are forgiven and receive forgiveness of sins. His testimony of mercy through the priesthood. Mount Sinai, that's where God gave them that. It was about 420 kilometers from where Elijah was. How far is that? Well, if you were to walk from here to Sydney, that would be about how far it would be. Or here to Fredericton, if you'd rather go more to the west. Um, So in Deuteronomy, it tells us that it is an 11-day journey to uh, the place that, uh, from where Elijah was about a day on the other side of where it says it was an 11-day journey. So it was a 12-day journey from where Elijah was, and that would be a pace of about 40 kilometers a day, not quite that much, that you'd walk about 40 kilometers every day, 12 days. So Elijah took it, he took this at a very leisurely pace because it took him not 12 days, but 40 days. So this was kind of a, like a, a very, very slow kind of walk that, that, that he was going on. The angel food, interestingly, gave him strength for the entire journey, and which, again, he took at a leisurely pace, 40 days, 40 nights. When it says 40 days and 40 nights, it doesn't mean that he was walking the whole time necessarily. The Bible speaks of 40 days and 40 nights just to refer to a complete 24-hour period. It can be any part of that 24-hour period that is considered a day and a night. Like when Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights, it, it, technically the way we would say it, it wasn't nights, but it was night days is how you, anyway, that's beside the point. So I've, I've often thought that if Israel had not complained and demanded it, that they would have been able to go through the wilderness without food and water. Because God didn't initially give them any water. They, they whined and then he said, okay, here, get the rock. The water came out. There you go. But, you know, he's able to sustain people because we have all these people that go 40 days in the wilderness without any provision. Jesus did it. Elijah did it. Moses did it. There's so it's, it's a kind of a common theme. But whatever, the main point here is how our Lord graciously cared for and provided for his servant. Not what Elijah asked for, death, but what Elijah needed. He does that for us, too. He is concerned for these things like food and rest and that sort of thing. The angel of the Lord often refers to the Lord himself, even God's son, when he visits his people and is in, in, in his pre-incarnate state. It says the angel of the Lord came. It often is referring to Jesus himself. Often our Lord uses our friends and family to see that we're provided for with food and rest when we lose heart. Someone comes and says, hey, you need to eat. That's God's grace to you, this ministering to you and reaching out to you when you're down and out. See what the Lord does next. He searches us out. We need that. Part of the purpose of the journey. In verse 9, we're told that Elijah goes into a cave at Horeb, 
and the Lord speaks to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Not so much, why are you in this cave, this particular cave, but the bigger question of, how did you come to this place in your life right now, Elijah? What are you doing? How did, how did you get into this kind of situation you're in right now, this place of despondency, this place of depression? How did you lose heart? How is it that you have withdrawn from the ministry that I have given you and that you have served me in for all these years, the service that I have for you to do in this world? That is the question that our Lord brings to us when we lose heart and stop carrying out our daily calling for him. Why are you here? Why are you here instead of there in my work? The question presses upon our conscience as Christians. Sometimes the question is presented by our friends. Why are you not going to work? Why are you not doing your housework? Why are you not, whatever it is. You know, that question comes to us from the Lord. It came to him directly to Elijah from the Lord. Elijah gives his reason in verse 10. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. He had. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Okay, yeah. Torn down your altars. Yeah. Killed your prophets with his sword. Yeah. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Well, not quite that. It's true enough that, they had been very, that he had been very zealous for the Lord. Again, I say more than most men who have ever lived. But that's not the reason that he quit. Did he quit because he'd been more zealous for it? No, because he felt sorry for himself that he had been more zealous. It, it also is also true that his ministry had had very little fruit. Much like the ministry of Isaiah. You remember when God called Isaiah? He said, Isaiah, you're going to go and serve me for years and years, basically. And you're going to preach. And uh, basically the purpose of your ministry will be to harden the people's hearts because I'm going to bring a big judgment upon them at the end. You mean it's going to go the opposite direction of what we would want ministry? Yeah, that's the purpose of your ministry, Isaiah. That's what you're called to do right now. Now now he feels that he is all alone. And indeed, they were ready to kill him. They've been ready to kill him all along. Now they seek my life. They've sought his life all along. Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, And even our Lord Jesus, during their time on earth, had similar responses to their ministries. People wanted to kill them and did kill them in many cases. All these men, like us, rightly wanted to see better things from their labors. They wanted to see people repenting and turning to the Lord. Of course they did. And of course they should. The problem is Elijah is not willing to go on now. He has, as he said before, I've had enough. Our Lord Jesus never came to that point. His labor seemed to be in vain, and he even commented that it seemed to be in vain, and he felt that, but he continued to go on without turning back. You remember when he went to Jerusalem? It says that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He, he went because that was where he needed to go in order to be crucified. God's very best servants may be brought to this point, but our Lord Jesus who bore more than any of them, was never brought to this point. Nevertheless, as we've seen in Hebrews, our gracious Lord deals with us with compassion when we're brought to this place because he knows the pressures more than any of us do that would bring someone to this place. He understands that as having come here in the flesh and he ministers to us with understanding and compassion, not with judgment and harshness. He knows the pressures because he experienced them and he sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses. How gently he deals with those who reach this place that Elijah reached. See how he responds gently, setting things back in order in Elijah's mind, in Elijah's faith, How does he address him? First, he shows him what his purpose is for Elijah's ministry. It is not for the dramatic conversion and return of Israel to God. That was not the purpose of his ministry for Elijah at at this time in history. 
not time for a great reformation and not time for a mighty judgment either. It wasn't time for the exile yet, but time for a voice of gentle testimony for God is what God was looking for at this time. We want something great, but often our Lord wants to use a simple godly testimony that we live every day to glorify him, a still small voice, our daily service to him, our daily faithfulness to him. Look at verse 11 and 12. He shows Elijah a great wind, so great that it cracked rocks into rocks, an earthquake, and a fire, and I'm sure it was a crazy, majestic kind of fire, but he was not in those things. He was not going to bring the fire of final judgment. He was not going to bring earthquakes and cracking rocks and all wind that cracks rocks and all these kind of things. No, instead of these, he was bringing a voice to his people at this time. That was his purpose. Like you, Elijah needed to be content with the ministry that God had given him and with the outcome of that ministry. The Lord sends him back to that ministry. That's exactly what happens here. He sends him right back to the work he called him to do. God calls Elijah to do three things. First, to anoint Haziel. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Now, what's that about? This was a pagan nation that was just to the north of, of Israel. They were often at war with them. And God had appointed that Haziel would come and bring a lot of trouble to Israel. Not the great trouble that Assyria would l later bring, but he would bring just, you know, there would be a lot of, uh, a lot of war and, and bloodshed and that sort of thing. And God is saying, with that quiet voice, I'm the one who is making Haziel king, that he might come and do my work in Israel bringing war upon them. This is me, God is saying. I want everyone to know my stamp is on this. So my prophet is going and saying, this is going to be the king of Syria. He was not. He had to like overthrow the one that was the king. Haziel had to do that. And then that he would, he would do these things. Elijah is to anoint this king of a foreign land to show everyone that God was the one that raised him up. That's what the prophets often did. They said, you know what's going to happen to you? There's going to be a big storm. And so then God's name was on that storm. We should have God's name on everything that happened, but we don't. And so the prophets taught us again and again that God's name is on the storm. God's name is on the nation that's raised up, that comes. And it's just in a quiet way. Okay, Elijah is speaking for God. Then he was to anoint Jehu, verse 16. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Now Jehu was going to bring God's hand of judgment against the wicked house of Ahab. And against all the Baal worshippers. Remember he got them all together in the temple and said, oh, is there all the Baal worshippers here? Are there any worshippers of the Lord? And then he, he brought down judgment upon them. Uh, God had raised Jehu up to do that. He sent Jehu to go and to destroy Ahab's house and Jezebel and all, all of them. That was his assignment. The house of Omri, really, that he was to destroy. Then the Lord goes on. Okay, so, so there's just that voice. Elijah just go and anoint Jehu. And then finally, Elijah was also to anoint Elisha as his successor. Now, before I go on with this, some of you will say, well, wait a minute. Elisha was the one that ended up anointing Haziel and Jehu. And it's true, he did. It's kind of interesting. And I, I can't explain why Elijah didn't do that. Maybe he was still struggling with his discretion. I don't know why he didn't actually do those things. But he did anoint Elisha. And Elisha, of course, his job, as we see here, was to carry out what Elijah had been doing. So the seamless work of God went on even when Elijah was sidelined, if you will, or when he was, I mean, he was of age, it's time for him to go to be with the Lord. But uh, Elisha, he says, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, anoint him is the context uh, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So God would have someone to carry on Elijah's work. What kind of work is it? Still small voice. 
small voice. Elijah did the same thing. He showed that where God was in the situation when Israel had forgotten God. The Lord was not finished with this particular work in this particular time of history. Later on, there would be other works that God would do that would be of a different nature. God would use these men to bring judgment and, again, more minor judgments. Not the big judgment that Assyria and Babylon brought later, but more secondary kind of judgments to those who opposed him in Israel and not without also preserving a remnant in Israel to follow him. So God makes this clear to Elijah in verse 17 and 18. So he's saying, okay, there's going to be great judgment here, but there's also going to be a people that I keep for myself as I always do. And so here it is, 17 and 18. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, in every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord had not given up on his people. Elijah needed to see that though it was a small number, the Lord still had his people. That's what Paul highlights when he refers to this passage in Romans 11. There are times when the church seems like it's about to be snuffed out in particular times in history, but we need to know that God is still at work. We say, oh, it's over, it's over. It's not. God is still at work. He's powerfully at work carrying out his plan. It may not be a great revival that he has in mind, but it's a powerful work of salvation. Think how mighty his work was. I, I refer to this to you from time to time with Noah. Think how powerful that work was. One family in all the world still serving God. What does it take to sustain one? Why would you like to be the only family? Everybody else says, oh, this is a bunch of foolishness. I don't want anything to do with that. You're stupid. And you're the only family in the whole world. And you're building this great big old massive ark because of the prophecy that you received. Noah was sustained in that for all of those years. That's almost a greater work than the, than the flood itself. It's, it's a remarkable thing. I have 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's what God is showing. Now, I'm not going to bring all Israel back to the Lord. Everybody's not going to get on the bandwagon and all like waving flags and everything and come back to the Lord. But I'm going to keep these people that you won't even hardly see them. There's going to be people that are calling on my name all over the place. See, doesn't that encourage you when we think about our situation and we see people turning away from the Lord in our society? God works the way God works. We don't say, oh, it's all over. There's nothing happening. It's all gone. No, it's not. You don't know what God has in the future either. The Lord is showing Elijah exactly what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4 as a reason not to lose heart. Our ministry, whatever it may be, is for God. It is the work that God has for us, not the word that we come up with. He is the one who sustains us, the second thing, and holds us up. Regardless of the threats of our enemies, he's the one who keeps us by his power. And he is faithful to bring his people in every age from one level of glory to another. The outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. We grow in grace. And to bring them to ultimate glory at the end. We're all going to be gathered together in Christ at the end. Through all the trials and the conflict, we grow in our communion with him while we're here. And we enhance our communion with him hereafter. We receive the eternal blessing that he has prepared for us in his heavenly house. We carry about the dying of the Lord in the world, but inwardly, we are constantly renewed for his glory. We are here for him. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 again. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Because we hope in God. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You can't crush out the church. It goes on. Always caring about the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus I'm sorry, always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Is he giving you a simple calling? 
And in that calling, does it seem sometimes like you accomplish nothing? If you're in Christ, do not lose heart. If you're doing God's work, do what he has given you to do for him. Be faithful in his word, in prayer, in worship on the Lord's Day. Be faithful in looking after your children, in serving people at your job, in a way that honors God every day. Be a good steward of your time and talents, all to be used for him. Rejoice in his gracious gifts and the beauty of his creation and the relationships that he's given to you. Press on for him in the hard times when you feel like giving up. He is the one who graciously sustains you. Cast yourself and all your cares upon him. He will uphold you and he will carry you through to glory. You will know him through your trials now and you will know him in the end as the one who has preserved you. His preservation of Elijah was really a microcosm or a picture of his preservation of the 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal. He has put us in Christ and in his kingdom that we might be redeemed and preserved in his grace forever and ever. And I read again, therefore we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And if you are not a believer, then I plead with you to turn to Christ at once. Because until you do, you are without God and without hope in the world, period. God has shown us that we are on a pathway to misery because of our sin. And the only way out is Jesus Christ. We're dying. We're dying and dying. And we're going to be utterly miserable in the end without Christ. He has graciously sent him. To be the savior of the world. The world will be saved. Those who do not come to him. Will be cast out. From that saved world. Without God's salvation. You are totally. Without hope. Dying. Will not be an escape. It will make things all the more. Difficult. He is a faithful savior. And will have mercy on all who come to him. For the salvation of that he offers. Please stand. <coughs> Our gracious Lord God, how we thank you for the things that you have revealed to us, O oh Lord, that we are in your hands and therefore we need not lose heart. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, that we would not lose heart. We know that you're the one that sustains us and that we will immediately lose heart if you, if you withdraw from us to test us or to try us. And that sometimes that is your purpose. But Lord, it doesn't change the fact that we need to trust you and we're called to trust you and we're called to go on trusting you just because we can't do it without your help any more than anything else that we're called to do. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us because we need your help. And we pray that you would give us courage. And we pray that we would know that our life has purpose in the Lord. That whatever your purpose is, is the purpose that we have, that, that is given to us. Help us not to be always wanting something other than you've given us. It's not maybe going to be the fire and the wind that breaks rocks and the um, earthquake and all those kind of things, but sometimes it's just a quiet place of service to the Lord. But Father, also, we do pray that we would, we would be burdened as these great men are, Lord, that are before us, and as the Lord Jesus was. He was burdened to see Israel turn to you. Even though it was not the time yet, he was greatly burdened and wanted to see them repent, wanted to see them come to you. And I pray that we would not take this kind of thing that we've heard today as a matter to be indifferent and say it doesn't matter. But that we would take it to say, 
no matter what happens, we should never give up because we're doing your work. And it may not be that there's anything great in the visible, tangible way. But indeed, Lord, how great it was that you preserved those 7,000. We know that sometimes revivals are not all they're cracked up to be because lots of people hop on just for the ride. They get on board because other people are doing it, and it's popular, and it's exciting, and all these things. And then when it all, when the dust settles, then they go right back to what they were before. But those 7,000 that go on through the, through the hard times, they're the people that are real. They're the ones that are your people. And we pray, Father, that we would see your mighty hand preserving your church, working in your people, and using your people to help each other and to glorify you in this world to live for you and to testify of you, even if it's a quiet voice, even if it's a voice that gets squelched and a voice that gets put in prison or a voice that even leads to the execution of that voice, your voice will not be silenced. It will speak even more when there is persecution than it does when there is not. And so we pray, Father, that, that the world would hear your voice through your church and that you would be glorified. We ask you, O oh Lord, indeed, that you would do great things we ask you that you would indeed turn our nation back to you wholeheartedly and that we would come and start serving you again. That is our desire. And Father, we bring that petition to you, but we also trust you to go on with today and tomorrow. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May he do that.